0: ask the average person in L.A. who's just a total pagan, uh, not Christian, what, is, what are these Christians all about? They'll tell you that Christians are always about two things. Hating people that don't agree with them and always asking for money. You know, the I forget where it was. It was a strongman contest down on one of the beaches and they're showing feats of strength and they want to see who had the greatest hand strength and some total chiseled bulk guy came up and he took a lemon and he squeezed it. I mean, and he squeezed out everything and he said, I'll give anybody in here a $1,000 and get another drop out of this lemon. And they had these bulk guys come up, you know, using two hands, squeeze, nothing, nothing. All of a sudden, this little kind of skinny guy with glasses and a bad comb over came up, and uh, he picked it up and squeezed, and about 10 drops came out. And they said, wow, who are you? What do you do? He said, I'm a pastor down the street, and I'm in the middle of a stewardship campaign. So you can squeeze every drop that is out of there, but. I don't want to squeeze, oh yeah, I do, squeeze every drop out of you, but I want us to take a look at this wonderful, strange, beautiful, tough thing called discipleship. As we said, it's impossible to be a disciple without being a steward. And any stewardship, every Christian, and particularly a disciple, needs to have a theology of money. And any theology of money, of wealth, worth its salt, answers three things. How we make it, how we spend it, and how we give it. And God has loaned to us this money, this thing called wealth in life. And how we've learned how to have freedom over this. One of the most incredible, liberating experiences in all of life is to have a healthy relationship with money. And you cannot if God isn't in front of that. And so as Paul is writing to Timothy, he reminds them of this great truth. Well, if you got your Bible, turn back over to uh, 1 Timothy, the 6th chapter, page 965, as we take a look at this. Now, if for any of you that are visiting, we have a map here of where Paul is writing. Paul is writing to Timothy, and he left him in Ephesus. The second missionary journey is where he meets Timothy. Remember, he went from Antioch back to Derby, where he had been there years earlier. Over to Troas, he gets this vision to take the gospel to Europe. So he goes to Philippi, and there he plants a church. Heads over to Thessalonica, plants a church there. Down to Berea, then to the intelligentsia capital of the ancient world, Athens, and then over to Corinth, which is kind of a pleasure center, and over to Ephesus. He was there three years, and he's left Timothy there before he heads on down. So he's writing to Timothy. This is the third largest city in the Roman Empire and is extremely wealthy. And so he is writing to Timothy at this time, and he tells him some pretty shocking news. When you want to read one of the most misused passages of Scripture in the last 2,000 years. Look at 6.1. Let all who are under the yoke of slavery regard their masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be blasphemed. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful to them on the ground that they're members of the church. Rather, they must serve them all the more, since those who benefit by their service are believers and beloved. Why that was misquoted is because slavery was just the currency of the day in that time. Paul is not pro-slavery. In fact, he says a rather stunning thing. Now keep in mind, at this time, a third of the Roman Empire were slaves. Most of them were blonde-haired, blue-eyed slaves from the northern tribes that they had warred and brought them back down to Rome. And many of them become Christians as well as their owners. And Paul has this shocking thing. He says slaves and their masters have the same relationship in Christ. Now he's not building an economic theory here, but he's saying if you have somebody over you, you don't disrespect them just because they're a brother or sister, but you serve them. An employer or an employee, just because you're Christian doesn't mean you don't have a job to do. And one of the most important things that we have to learn how we make money God cares about. The Rabbi Saul of Tarsus, Paul says there are two reasons for why you make money. One is to provide your needs and others, but to create. You are a little creator. You are made in the very image of God, Latin, the Imago Dei. And God has made you to be able to come into this world and create things. And the creation of wealth is one of those gifts that God gives us. Some of us, and for the reformers, who are our history, as Presbyterians, this radical new idea, the dignity of work in itself, not the end result of work, having money or something, but in the very act. You realize there was work before there was sin in the world. Not grueling labor, but Adam and Eve, before they ever sinned, they weren't just taking long walks in the moonlight, holding hands. though they no doubt did that. But they were working, it says, in the garden. And they were discovering and they were planting. And it was a joy to them. When you go to work, or even if you were retired, how you were living your hours, or as a student there, How we work, how we create wealth, God cares about. And the wonderful thing is, it doesn't have to be spectacular to be pleasing to God. Jesus of Nazareth, at 30 years old, is baptized by John and the theophany, God Almighty, speaks from heaven and says, this is my beloved son who brings me great pleasure. What had Jesus been doing? For the last 30 years, making chairs and tables and carpentry work with his stepfather, Joseph. He hasn't preached a sermon. He hasn't done anything. And God the Father says of God the Son, you bring me such joy. Because when Jesus, who emptied himself of the attributes of omnipotence and omnipresence and puts on flesh, when he makes a chair, when he makes a table, he does it unto his father. And it probably wasn't perfect. I mean, he wasn't making plasma screens ahead of time, you know, there. He was just making stool. But but in his heart, and God says, I love you, my son. And when you and I go to our job, not just to put up with it, even though a lot of times it is a pain, because now we are under the order of the fall, but when we serve as unto the Lord, it brings pleasure to God. And Paul is telling Timothy here that you must work in this way. And then he goes on, well, Not only creating that. If you are selling a product and you know it's not worth the price, knock it off. If you are offering a service that you know you are not going to come through on, I don't mean that things get in the way. You better stop it. And by the way, Paul later gets down on owners of slaves saying, you better be careful how you treat them. Because God is your master too as well. Do you treat them as brothers and sisters in Christ? We should have the reputation as being such ethical people that people will trust us. Carolyn's brother, when he was at the Air Force Academy, he retired as a vice wing commander for F-16s, but he was saying that very often some of the upperclassmen would run a test on them. Because of the honor code, they'd come in and they'd leave their wallet on the bunk. And they were waiting because you will not lie, cheat, or steal, or tolerate those who do. And this was a test to see, can I leave my wallet there and nobody touch And they would sit there for a week. Nobody would take it. In the same way, well, that's because they having the honor code as an officer. We as Christians should be able to say, wow, that you can trust me with your money. You can trust me with my product to you. Again, it doesn't mean that you have to do it perfect, but it means in your heart. Money has instrumental value. The people you are sitting by have intrinsic value. Not for what you get out of them, because they are literally made in the image of God. Money has no value except in how it is used. And there's a good side to money, and there's an ugly side to money. And so Paul tells, you know, slaves and masters, and then he goes on. By the way, every version has puts in their own paragraphs, because, you know, there's no spaces between the letters in the Greek manuscripts. And why they did a break in the middle of the sentence, I have no idea. I love to bring up things you don't care about. Teach and urge these duties. Whoever teaches otherwise and doesn't agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that's in accordance with godliness is conceited, understanding nothing and has a morbid craving for controversy and for disputes about words. What's he talking about? He's talking about self-proclaimed preachers that are stirring up all this. He's in Ephesus, remember? All this heavy theology, this philosophy, which is kind of a pre-Gnostic teaching. And they're doing it for money. But he's, Paul says the end result is, and they're doing it because they're conceited. And they want to make themselves look impressive. And look what he says. From these come envy, dissension, slander, base suspicions, wrangling among those who are depraved in mind and bereft of the truth. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. By the way, that, that word envy... Jealousy is where I want what you have. Yeah, I'd like, I'm jealous. I want what you have. Envy is where I don't want you to have it. It's not so much that it's good for me. I just don't want anybody else in front of me. You and I live in a culture that is driven by consumerism in the marketplace, consuming more and more and more, but envy in this election time between the parties. It's not so much what we we'll want others to have. We don't want them to have it. And Paul is saying to Timothy, 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 Tim, Tim you've got to learn this one. You've got to win on this one. Tell them not to get caught into that. And what we talk about is that you and I live this life, and we need to work. Paul will tell the Thessalonians, because they heard Christ was coming back, so they were just sitting around, not working. He said, if a man or woman doesn't work, they shouldn't eat. God will never bless laziness. I mean, there's effort involved in life. And if you're just looking for a way that's a lazy way out, God's not going to bless that. And, but there's a dignity in working hard, and there is a dignity in not only how we make it, but how we spend it. Verse 6. Of course there is great gain in godliness combined with contentment. For we brought nothing into this world so that we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be, there's that word again, or KO, content with these. But those who want, and that word want, epithumia, epidermis means top, the greatest desire, those who long to be rich, fall into temptation or trapped by many senseless, moronious, stupid and harmful desires that plunge, like the word "butizo" like sinking a boat, sinking a boat, plunge people into ruin and destruction. So he doesn't say the money is the root of all evil. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil and in their eagerness to be rich, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. Now there's a beautiful side to money. I mean, when someone, when you can have a chance to buy something nice, and when you have a chance to be able to have something that's comfortable, and for you to enjoy it, and remember the rabbi said, we'll give an account for every blessing we refuse to enjoy, that when God gives you something, he wants you to enjoy it. But there's an ugly side to money, and it's this addiction side to it. Remember that old line, uh, I think it was from Vaudeville, a guy, Jack Benny, the guy, Mugger puts a gun to the back of him and says, Give me your money or life. And he doesn't say anything. He said, I said your money or life. And Jack Benny goes, I'm thinking about it. But that's the whole point. We think that if you don't have money, you don't have life. We spend money we don't have to buy things we don't want to impress people we don't like. There's the American system. And there are some of you out there right now, that you are just spending, spending, spending in this consumerism, and it never will make you full. It's whether it's identity, and idolatry, remember, is identity theft. When you are worshiping an idol and saying, this is my God, you don't know who you are. And we have great idolatry in our culture. This is not a godless culture. People say that, oh, uh uh-uh, we got other gods, and we serve them with all of our hearts. And money is one of those, and the power that comes with that. And Paul isn't down on money. He's down on the addiction to it. And so he he tells him to tell those that are wealthy to make sure that they have this freedom. in. It. Now, again, Jesus had rich friends. You know who underwrites Jesus' ministry? Luke told us. Some wealthy women, which, by the way, was unheard of for a rabbi to have women underwriting his ministry. And Jesus took their money. Lazarus? He is so close to Lazarus that when Jesus is hiding for his life, Mary and Martha know where Jesus is when they send news and saying Lazarus is sick. Lazarus was rich. He had his own grave there. He had, like had his own hacienda. Lazarus was loaded. And yet Jesus stayed there all the time. He was his friend. And yet he it was the, the friend of the poor. It's this relationship to money. I hope you understand not money itself that a disciple learns to get a handle on. This beautiful sight, And when you... Who is rich? Probably in the last 10 to 15 years, there have been dozens of studies on the correlation between wealth and happiness. I mean, you can Google those up today. You'll just read them until your eyes fall out. I've been doing it all last week. And basically, the bottom line is this, worldwide. Money does bring happiness when it supplies the basic needs of life. If you are starving or you need medicine and you don't have money for that... Money makes you happy if you don't have clothes or shelter. But then the correlation falls off of the cliff. Because the more people make, the more they change their expectations. And here's where they found out how you think you're wealthy. If you make 20% more than your peers, you consider yourself okay. So if you're making $3 million a year, but your peers are making 5, you think you're poor. If you're making $20,000 a year, but your peers are making 15, You're good. And what we have to learn is this side of being able to say, Lord, how can I use this in the right way? Now, it's been said before, a wealthiest man in the world is the one that has a hundred dollars more than he wants. And if you and I can get our checks and balances, why do we need to have this? Why do we need to have the latest gadget? Why do I need to have this much money in the bank? Why do I need to have these kind of clothes or this kind of car? This is what Paul is telling Timothy. Timothy, remember who you are. It's how we make it. It's how we spend it. There are some of you out there, you need to quit spending. You can have fun without spending money. And there are some of you, you are hoarding so much money. You know what you need to do this afternoon? Go buy some ridiculously expensive shoes. You need to do that. Because you're so hoarding onto it, thinking that holding, 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 when God gave it to be good. And God will take care of us. How we give it. Now the tithe, people say that's legalistic. That's from the Old Testament. Well, you don't want to go to the New Testament. Because the New Testament, the early church liquidates all their assets and gives it to each other. Jesus says to Zacchaeus when he says, I will give half of what I own to the poor. And four times anybody I have sold, he said salvation comes. You don't want to go to the New Testament. You want to stay in the Old Testament. But 10% is kind of the benchmark. And the question isn't, are you legalistic? The question is, do you honor the Lord with the first fruits that are there? And again, I will never tell you where to give. If this is your home church, you give to Bel Air. Whatever your home church is, you give that. I don't know that you have to give everything there, but it should be a sizable portion of it. And so as we learn to give to the Lord, the Lord will take care of us. My mom, most of my family... My relatives from Colorado. I'm trying to think the sociological term for them. White trash. I think that's the term. But uh, they lived in the mountains and they were fairly poor. But my mom was always generous with money and taught us that. And and I remember Carolyn and I were here interning back in uh, '78. I was at Fuller Seminary and you know, we didn't have two nickels to rub together. And Carolyn came in one day and she said, uh, "So this next year, uh, what are we going to give to the Lord?" Because it was like, no, it was actually was in December. We hadn't given anything since graduating and. I said, What do you mean? She said, Well, you know, what are you gonna give to the Lord? She go, I said, Carolyn, I'm in seminary. God doesn't expect me to give anything. And she just gave me one of those looks, you know, and uh never marry a Lutheran. And as so we we gave something to the Lord, I was thinking, Oh, I can't, but I'll do that. I tell you the truth. Three weeks later, and you ask Carolyn this, I got a check in the mail from someone I had known from a long time ago that was the exact amount of money that we had given to the church. And all I could think was, I should have given more. <laughs> well, every time Carol and I give money, it's not, we. there's money out on the front lawn, you know. That's not true, but God will take care of us. And in light of my transitioning to another ministry in place, I'm telling you, as your pastor for the next two weeks in particular, Bel Air is doing great things with your money. I mean, to see the elders that we have had for the last 11 and a half years, they so pray over this money and talk about it, and you need to be giving the, your money here, wherever your home church is. I always say that. And if you have a problem within your own life of being able to get a handle on this, ask God to help. And again, how we make it and how we spend it, God cares about the other 90% as well. Remember Pastor Lee and Liu who were here from China uh, last week? The Chinese, through a translator they were sharing with me, used to have an expression. When the early Christian missionaries in the late 1800s, and a lot of them Presbyterian, came to China to share the gospel, there was an expression that had been around for about until 1995, when someone in China becomes a Christian, China loses a Chinese citizen. And what they meant by that was, when they became Christians, they took on Western ways and they weren't Chinese anymore. Do you know what the expression is now? When China, when someone in China becomes a Christian, China loses a criminal. Because the Christians are so ethical, and the Chinese government is trying to figure this out. They are, they keep their word, they're not corrupt. Corruption is so bad, they're like in so many places, but not for the Christians. Do people know that about you and me? And they go, well, you're a Christian. I can trust you with this. I know that you'll do what you say and say what you do. You'll keep your word with it. That's how the gospel advances. Different than the world's ways. And God's incredible love for us. Last verse, Look, jump over to verse 17 on the next page. So this is the end of his letter. We'll look at real quick next week, Is in the next two weeks, his next letter. But look at verse 17. As for those of you in this present age are rich, command them not to be haughty or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but rather on God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. They're to do good, be rich in good works, generous and ready to share. Thus storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future. This is a wonderful line. So that they may take hold of the life that really is life. Paul's telling Tim in Ephesus in this wealthy, huge Roman Greek city, tell those that got a lot of money to chillax a little bit. Keep in mind, they're not so hot stuff because they've got this. And God will give to different people different opportunities to create wealth. Some people have a lot of money because they God blessed them with a great mind and opportunity and they worked hard and God blessed them. Other people have money because they made it the old-fashioned way. They inherited it. You know, they are third baseman, born on third, and they think they hit a triple. And God is saying to them, you know, you need a healthy understanding of who you are. Some of us, God will never give us the ability to create as much wealth as others. But I want to tell everybody in this room and watching, if you are an American, and I don't make light of when you can't pay the bills and it's just getting tough, you, by world and historical standards, by the standards of this time, are rich. We Every one of us in here had to pick the clothes we wore out of extras. We have a problem with too much food and too much weight. We have an unbelievable lifestyle, but you live in a world that tells you more, more, more. You don't have enough. You don't have enough. And we need a nose hit of reality for God to say, I will take care of you. Where do you think I am? Winston Churchill was one of the people that understood wealth, and I love that about him. You know, he was raised really rich, and Churchill loved to eat and drink, and how he lived as long as he did, I have no idea. He smoked like seven cigars a day. Uh, But one time during the war, he came and sat down with his general, and Churchill ordered some caviar, and he offered the general some caviar, And his general said, who was just back from the North African campaign, saying, our boys are drinking water and dying in that desert. I'm never going to eat that caviar. And Churchill had a great line. He said, if you can show me how my not eating caviar will help one of those boys, I'll never touch it again. Otherwise, pass me a cracker. And what he meant was, my going with doesn't mean they go without. And it was a great understanding. If God's given you something, enjoy it. But learning to share it and to give. Life that is really life. And are trying to understand God's ways, which is so different than the world. You know, when, when you love the Lord and you give to Him, you don't serve the Master to get more of His money. You serve the Master to get more of the Master. God really does have, like, everything. And he's loaned to us all of this money. And when you love the Lord, it's not so that you feel better than others, because God he loves them every bit as much. But so this freedom, this crazy giddiness of being able to give to others. Remember when uh, Carolyn was working in the psych wards and some others I've been told before when some of these poor emotional mentally broken people to get them ready to mainstream them back out into society they got to teach them life skills workshops and so they teach them how to handle money by giving them little poker chips and if they're good in the hospital and they can get a snicker bar for this many chips or a cup of coffee for this many and they go no you've spent all your chips you can't get another one trying to teach them the tough thing though is that when some of them reenter into the world they go down to Ralph's with poker chips and they're shocked and they don't understand why they can't buy food with that because that's not an exchange. That was play money. Jesus said a curious thing. He said, if you can't handle somebody else's money, why would God give you your own? We do the reverse of that. If I can handle mine, I handle this. He said, if you are faithful in a little, you'll be faithful in a lot. But if you can't handle a little... God's never going to give you a lot. He said when the true wealth, not the shallow trinkets and muddy water of this world we're trying to drink that we think is wealth, but the real wealth that is coming, when God gives it to each of us. And it's not about buying or bribing God. It's becoming the kind of person we are. Have you noticed, uh, I think back with my uh, kids when they were younger, and all the money we would spend on them for toys. And how long do toys last? Is it like an hour and a half before they break them? But it's funny to me what they attach to. And I've shared my oldest daughter, Vanessa. She was our firstborn, and, and one of our relatives gave her this teddy bear when she was born. She called it Berry Bear. And by the time she was in grade school, this thing, it had an eye missing, and had a ear torn off, it had, tried to sew the arm on in the wrong place, it was covered in God knows what body fluids, this thing was just horrible, you know, and I tried to throw this thing away once thinking like, because I got a great new one, and Vanessa was so upset and she got that thing out of the trash can and she said, this is mine, I love this, you're thinking, really, look at it, And she saw something I didn't. And God says of every one of us in here, you are mine. All the stains, all the brokenness, all your failures, all your sins, what the world doesn't see. I wouldn't trade the cosmos for you. You have a place in God's heart that he made that if all the angels and cherubim bow down before him and if civilizations followed him freely without sin, and you never did, he so longs for you, he still would have sent his boy to this cross. If you can't trust God with your money, how could you trust him with your soul? And so he calls and says, how you make it, make it and do it unto me how you expend it, be smart in this, and how you bless others. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, I thank you that we come, we brought nothing into this world, and Lord, we're going to leave it all behind. But I thank you, God, that you provide for us in ways, and we as Americans forgive us that we so get caught into this crazy consumerism that we think we're poor when we're not. God, I do pray for those that actually are in need. Lord, there are families tonight, their kids are going to go to sleep crying because they're hungry, and they have no food, literally, in this city. There are people tonight shivering in bed because they don't have the money for medicine. And, God, there are wealthy people in multi-million-dollar houses that are going to lie in bed tonight crying in their heart just for somebody to care for them. God, thank you whether we are wealthy or whether we are poor, that we still have the need for the good news of Jesus Christ. So we pray, Lord, that you would help us to be able to trust you with not only our lives and our futures and our relationships, but trust you with what you've loaned to us. So, Lord, we pray you'd bless the gift and the giver alike. For the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen.